Hello, welcome to the Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bastards podcast for the week of February 23, 2015. This is episode 251, and I am Chris Bevelo, Executive Vice President at Revive Health. With me today are Jackie Olson, Account Supervisor with Revive Health, and Adam Meyer, VP at Revive Health. And I should say still with me today because, Jackie, you should not be with us today. <laughs> no kidding. Out of principle, I shouldn't be on this podcast, but I am. <laughs> no, this, so this go ahead. This will definitely be the last one for a little while if I can help it. <laughs> do you have anything to do about it? If I have anything to do or say about it, yes. So All right, well, if enjoy you start di- me while you have me. <laughs> if, if, if you start dilating during the recording, just let us know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll say it exactly like that. Yep. I'm dilating, guys. <laughs> Let me get my ruler out. Let me get my ruler out. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they, well, yeah, I was going to say, I don't think they use like a ruler when they're measuring that, right? It's usually like, and it's kind of, I always thought this was kind of nasty. Sure they do. It was even, do they? I thought I it was like. It's like their fingers. That's, I was just going to say, I'm pretty sure they measure with fingers, mm-hmm. which is kind of like, on one hand, it's probably the way to do it. centimeters your finger is? I don't measure your finger, I suppose, and then. I suppose if you're an OB, you probably <laughs> you probably know have a good idea. Yeah, you have a decent understanding of that. Yeah, you've got tr- enough experience that you know what's what down there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great start to the podcast. <laughs> Jumping right into the graphic. How did we get there? Finger measurement <laughs> discussion. <laughs> Lovely. Well played. <laughs> All right. On that note, hey, and on that note, we're excited because we're actually going to talk about uh, healthcare marketing today in a serious way because we haven't done that in a while amazing i know so hopefully we haven't lost all of our listeners uh, (laughs) though i think even the healthcare marketers i think enjoy the other stuff as much as we do so at least that's what i hear so let's see before we get to those topics some updates speaking 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 gosh it's almost march that's that's crazy well not almost i know would you say it's almost march yeah it's about a week away i'd say it's almost march okay almost march so in april I will be speaking at the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit, actually speaking on April 14th, but the, confer- but the conference goes from the 13th through the 15th. That's in Vegas, baby, Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking with Chris Ernst, who's VP of Marketing at El Camino Hospital, about embracing change, one organization's shift to the new paradigm. That'll be great. Uh, also speaking May 20th through the 22nd, uh, at Nesco, doing a keynote there about Joe Public, and that's actually May 21st is the date of that. Uh, and then lining up some other speaking engagements, which we'll talk about next time, I think. So, be out and about around the country. Yeah, I'm glad Nesco, I'm glad Nesco is not today. Holy cow! Like Why is that? flying into well, it's in Boston. Oh, uh, yeah. But they have like 17 feet of snow on the ground or something. Yeah. Poor people. I saw something. I mean, yeah, we, I mean, we definitely know what it's like to have a crap load of snow. That's a that, but that's a lot. Not, Not that year. much. No. Yeah. It's been a while since we've seen, I don't know if I've ever seen that much in my days. And I've always lived in Minnesota. So that's saying something. Um, <laughs> but I, I've heard, I saw something on the news too that they have, that there's, they have like no place left to put the snow over there. Yeah. So they're going to have to start dumping it into the, into the water. Wow. Yeah, which which is not good for the water because of all the crap that's in the snow that's been cleared off roads and stuff. But they literally just have. I mean, they got to put it somewhere, and there's nowhere else that it can go. Well, it oh, is it is literally close to seven feet in the in within the last month. Wow, that's not an exaggeration. That's really what it's been. I mean, I'm sure some of it's melted, but 
Uh, yeah, you see the pictures of people like trying to shovel out, and it's above their head. <laughs> you know, compared to the rest of the country, Minnesota's wow. we're kind of weenies right now. It's negative six out. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, we've had a pretty mellow. The snow has been pretty light. The cold. Yes. Yeah, the snow this year hasn't been too bad. <laughs> La- I mean, but after last year, it was. We need a we need a breather when it comes to uh, snowfall. I mean, I'm that's not complaining, like, everyone, but Jackie, that's like somebody in Phoenix going. You know, the summer isn't bad, other than the heat. It really hasn't been that bad. <laughs> it is frigid, but at least we don't have the ice and the snow. That I mean, other parts of the country have just really been hit lately. So fair enough. Yeah, you know, and, and and our friends in Alaska are probably like always rolling their eyes because I've got <laughs> I've got friends who post facebook pic post to pictures like from their app from their apps their their weather apps when it's like 30 degrees below and that's not even like wind chill but they so, live in alaska what, no i know yeah, you gotta you gotta expect what it you there. get yeah, yeah exactly. and, and this is what we get for living here exactly i guess in boston it's just kind of i don't know you probably don't expect seven feet of snow necessarily no <laughs> i don't that's think fair. so all right so luckily that's in may uh, some other things. <laughs> Don't forget to check out Joe Public 2, Embracing the New Paradigm. Uh, go to JoePublic2.com where you can buy the e-version or the hardbound. Get them while they're hot. They're, they're flying off the shelf. We're going to have to do a reorder, a reprinting here pretty soon, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. It's getting yeah, great, very good. great feedback from people. So, uh, And remember that when you buy the book, you also are automatically enrolled in the Joe Public Book Club where you get follow-up content, and we have a piece of content actually going out probably within the next week or so. So if you want to jump out there and get the book, uh, you'll get out ahead of that and get that content. And let's see. Digital Marketing Audit, still alive and kicking at intervalaudit.com. Remember, a lot of this stuff is going to shift over once we finally integrate all the Interval uh, brand content into Revive Health, which is in progress now. But those URLs will still be in place. Uh, so you can always find it at intervalaudit.com. Great tool. So highly recommend that you go out there and check it out. Great way to evaluate your digital marketing efforts. And then we've got a Joe Public Retreat coming up. Uh, we're not sure when that's going to be. We're focusing on sometime in June or July. Uh, but it will be in Minnesota where it's beautiful here that time of year. So we got to nail that down. But it's coming. Hang in there. Hang tight. Hang tight. Okay. So let's talk about digital first. And I had, let me introduce it this way, because there's a blog post that I actually wrote and posted at Revive Health. So if you go to the newsroom there, you'll find it at the top of the thread. Uh, But we'll provide a link to it. Uh, But it stems from uh, an opportunity I had yesterday to moderate a session at the IN2 Innovation Summit. So that's an annual conference put on by the Holmes Report in San Francisco. uh, And it really looks at innovation, disruption, and evolution uh, that redefines our business. So it's very focused on marketing, communications, PR. It's not healthcare focused, which is interesting, Mm -hmm. uh, but focused on that side of the, you know, all the stuff that we do every day. And so I was the moderator and... Our session was titled Clash of the Titans, and it was really about how some of the biggest, bestest brands in healthcare are using digital uh, strategies and technology platforms to kind of revolutionize their approach to marketing and engaging consumers and patients. And it featured Paul Mattson, who is the chief marketing officer of Cleveland Clinic, uh, and Jason Rushforth, who is vice president uh, at Oracle. 
So two obviously well-known brands. I mean, Cleveland Clinic's probably one of the top top two, usually, I would say. If not top three, well-known or known, respected provider brands in the country. And Oracle, mm-hmm. everybody knows Oracle. Uh, and that they're respected for technology. So it was really an opportunity for us to all talk about what's going on. Paul shared what they've been doing at uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Some interesting things out of that, of course, most folks are familiar with their health hub, right? That's their blog that has just blown up. It's kind of the gold standard for health and wellness blogs. Uh, and he talked a lot about the success that they've had with that, which I'll talk to here in a second as well. Uh, but also he shared the fact that they are embarking on a pilot with marketing automation, which is exciting to hear that, you know, one of the big brands is moving in that area and should also be yet another wake up call to everybody else that this is happening and you need to get on board though, knowing that Paul and his group is probably still one of like 10 health systems, it's really, well, I'm exaggerating a a tad, but let's say 10%. I'd be surprised if 10% of health systems are using marketing automation in a meaningful way. Uh, That's just kind of how far behind we are with this kind of stuff. But anyway, so it was a really cool session. Uh, Jason put forth some some great uh, insights on technology and how it's being used, marketing automation again, Uh, how it's not being used just for marketing, but also for internal communications at organizations. So you can imagine if you had 30,000 employees and you need everybody to enroll in health insurance or you need everybody to, um, I don't know, take some kind of step and you're emailing them saying, here's what you need to do with marketing automation. You can track the progress and you can figure out where people at and and continue to send them messages as appropriate so you get adoption of whatever it is that you're trying to to get adoption for. So uh, beyond just the normal marketing realm. So that was kind of exciting. What was super exciting to me, and I had Paul verify this like three times because I'm like, I'm writing a blog post about this and and you can't stop me. No, I didn't say it that way. but, um, (laughs) But yeah, that's what the blog post is all about. And what Paul said was he showed a diagram, and you'll see this in the blog post, that showed you know the three main areas, the three main ways people think about marketing these days, or often do, which is earned media, paid media, and owned media. So earned media is typically driven by PR, not always, uh, but that's basically where you show up in some third-party media. So that's like a newspaper article or a TV article or whatever, right? And typically that's the most powerful form of media in terms of building a brand because it's it's you're you're receiving accolades or promotion or whatever from somebody else so it's easier to trust uh people put a lot of weight into that and it's also usually or oftentimes on a mass scale we all know what paid media is uh and paid media can take all kinds of forms it can take mass advertising forms it can take the form of search engine marketing display advertising whatever uh, of course, that's normally the dominant uh, form for hospitals and health systems in terms of expenditure and time spent. Mm-hmm. And then own media, which is content you create for yourself. So I mentioned the Health Hub uh, blog. That's an example of that. Uh, your Facebook or Twitter posts, uh, whatever content you're creating yourself that's not put out through another channel, or an, I shouldn't say channel, another venue that would be earned media is own media. So 
when Paul talked about it, those are pretty common, those three buckets. When Paul talked about it, he shows it almost like a little pyramid where you've got earned media and paid media on the bottom and own media is at the top. And he said that's intentional because own media is their top priority, which is, first of all, very exciting to hear. Uh, right. Again, not surprising given the resources they've poured into Health Hub. Uh, but, you know, from our perspective, the Joe Public perspective, love the idea that you're putting own media over certainly right. paid, paid media, right? But here's what was cool. He said that <clears throat> when it comes to the so the overall driver of awareness, so if they when they measure awareness of Cleveland Clinic, the overall driver of it is earned media. Okay, so more people overall hear about Cleveland Clinic through earned media than anything else because if they get a story in the Wall Street Journal or USA Today, millions of people see it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's not surprising. It would be very hard for a brand like uh, even Cleveland Clinic to have that be paid media. But here's what I thought was great. He said the overall driver of new awareness is own media, and what he means by new awareness is people hearing about Cleveland Clinic for the first time, which is really an important segment, right? You're going out there trying to build your brand with new people, uh, whether those people are just you know coming into the, a life stage where they start thinking about healthcare, whether they're in new geographies, whether that's domestic or global, whatever, more people hear about Cleveland Clinic for the first time from owned media than from earned or paid. Very cool. Yeah. And he put it in terms of digital. So he's, um, he's, you know, he said, he said to me, we attribute digital as our number one driver of new awareness. And so what he's talking about primarily is the, is the owned content like the health hub. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's another bullet in the chamber. That's a terrible metaphor. (laughs) You can't use those metaphors anymore. People get very upset. It's, it's another, um, how about this nail in the coffin? That's positive. Much better. better. Yeah. For paid media. Right, exactly. Uh, because, as I say in the blog post, awareness is such a hot button issue. I mean, if there's right. an if there's a a thing that drives healthcare marketing more than anything, it's this need we need awareness. We need to tell our story, as if that's the problem, right? Right. And so, the first flaw, of course, is the one I've been beating over people's head for five years now. <laughs> Joe Public doesn't care about your hospital, so just telling your story on a mass level is not relevant to 95% of them. But now another part of this, this flawed logic is exposed because normally when people say that, what they mean is we need to tell our story through radio, TV, outdoor, print, billboards. Yeah. Mass advertising. Uh, And now what we're hearing from one of the top brands is that from their perspective, they're actually driving more awareness from digital, not from paid. Hooray. Yes. Yes. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's so great to hear. I just want to, I want to like take this blog post around with me or, you know, or this, that quip and just have it in my wallet. So like when somebody pulls that out, I can flip my wallet out like the police and just like show my badge and say, (laughs) "Eh, eh, eh, eh." stop talking about this. It's, it drives me crazy because I hear it all the time, all the time. And we're working with a client right now who's just under constant siege from leadership and physicians and board members with this 
I mean, it's, I swear it's like a time machine and we're back in the 1980s. <laughs> and, and these people are just like, we don't see us out in the market. And wow, we're not in the market. We're failing. And you're just like, come on. It's 2015. Yeah. I wonder if that's ever going to end. I mean, even, you know, even though we hear about places like the Cleveland Clinic and, you know, the great strides that they're making, I just wonder if, if it's ever going to fully go away. Probably not, but we can hope and dream, right? I think it will. I think it will. We heard from another um, client within the last couple of weeks uh, that talked about that dynamic because we were actually talking to a group of physicians about we're starting an initiative with them to leverage content marketing instead of promotional marketing to promote their service line. And part of our philosophy is, hey, you need to get in there with the service line leadership and the physicians early mm-hmm. and explain what you're doing so they're not shocked when you show them these concepts. And they they were cool. They were really on board. Uh, but we talked about that pressure of, hey, you see everybody else in the market doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, we should be doing that. And the, the marketing lead said we actually have, and I've heard this before in other markets, we have results that show despite the fact that Hospital B, our main competitor, is out there everywhere and has spent millions of dollars, there's no shift in market share. There's no shift in awareness. There's no shift in perception. and Because right. you can study that for externally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just shows that it's j- they're just like I say all the time. When you see that, instead of instead of feeling pressure, you should stand up and cheer that your competitors are flushing money down the toilet. Exactly, that's good for you. Yeah. So, I don't know, beating the beating the same drum, but when it's Paul Matson, CMO at Cleveland Clinic, mm-hmm. then hopefully that will hold some weight for people. Oh, definitely. <clears throat> yeah, this this is great to hear. So yeah, we can move on. We don't have to keep talking about it. It's <laughs> exciting. I also referenced the fact in the blog post that Best Buy hasn't run a Super Bowl ad for two years in a row, and they oh, attribute right. that to their move to digital and personalized marketing. And so, do you know how that's going for them? Well, if they've done it two years in a row, I assume it's it's going well for them. Like That's it's true. not an experiment. It's not like they're saying, "Hey, we tried this. You know, let's try this and see what happens." They did it one year, um, so they've had an entire year of results and decided to continue the same strategy. So, the, the article doesn't really talk about that, other than reinforcing that that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So you have to assume that it's actually going well for them. It's paying off. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, good stuff. Should we move on to another healthcare marketing talker? Let's do it. Okay, so this is interesting because in in the history of our podcast, I think we've probably touched on this three or four times before, and that is the use of the word marketing in healthcare uh, and all the challenges that that entails. And something's happening now that it's interesting to me because on one hand, I fully support it, and on the other, it causes me concern, and that is... I've come across two significant size systems of late that have either already or are planning to change the name of their department internally. So instead of being called the marketing department, they're going to be called, for lack of a better or accurate phrase, the engagement department. They're not going to literally be called that. They'd be called (laughs) strategic engagement or market engagement or consumer engagement or whatever. The point is they're replacing marketing with engagement. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And so I'll let you guys weigh here in a second. My perspective is just off the top. I'll just start with I love engagement because I, I, I say every time I get a chance that that should be your number one goal as a marketer these days. It shouldn't be awareness. It shouldn't be perceptions. It sure as hell shouldn't be impressions. It should be engagement. And, of course, that's not anything new. Uh, folks have been saying that for quite some time now. But in our world, it's it still sounds like, a ooh, ah, wow, that's really different. Uh, so I like it from that standpoint, but I do have some concerns. So uh, what do you guys think just off the top of your head about that shift? Um. You know, I'm I'm of two I'm kind of in two camps on that. When I worked, I mean, I spent 5 years in a hospital marketing department before kind of moving you know, coming to the agency side. Um and when I was there, I felt in this maybe because it was in for this is for me personally. Maybe it was cuz I was it was I was earlier in my career um and my perception at the time of what we were doing and what we should be focusing on kind of aligned with what I'm with 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 this mindset with thinking less about, you know, just being pure marketers and more about kind of the mm-hmm. um, engagement side and the education side. Um, but, you know, as I moved to the, to the agency side and, and again, this is for me, so I don't want to put the, this word into anybody else's mouth, but kind of matured in my career anyway and started to look through, um, you know, what we were doing through kind of a different lens than, than maybe I was previously. I, I started to have some issues with, um, thinking about a hospital marketing department that way, or I should just say a, a marketing department that way. Um, so I think, I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to what, what does an organization want and need? Does it want and need a marketing department or does it want and need a department that's maybe a little less about marketing and more about um, engagement and education and, and, you know, a little bit less about the pure ROI side of the equation. Um, so I, I don't know. And maybe that maybe there's not like a, a, a simple answer to that, a, a kind of a global answer that applies to all hospitals or health systems. It could be, you know, I think that each is maybe going to identify its needs differently and maybe it's a mix of the two, but yeah, for me, I still, I kind of, I, I struggle for to, to see a marketing department as more of an engagement department. Um, mm-hmm. If it's supposed to be a marketing department, but again, I don't know, you know, I think it really comes down to what, what do you need? What do you look, what are you after? What's, what's making a difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with what Adam says for the most part. I can appreciate moving toward engagement because it's because of kind of the progressive nature of it, um, if you will. But at the same time, you know, fully moving away from marketing, I just think kind of might have its implications too. I don't know. I could kind of, I can kind of see both sides on that one. Well, I, and I think it's tough to just, I don't think any organization, if an organization wants to make that shift, I think the wrong, the wrong move is probably to just say, Hey, we're no longer a marketing department. We're this, we're this now. Right. Right. Um, if you staffed your entire department with marketers who are, have backgrounds in marketing, who have educations in marketing, who want to do marketing, they may not be the right people to be tapping for, for this, for it to be, you know, you might need to look at people who are more on the, I don't know what's a lot, a lot of different sides in that case, I guess, you know, yeah. it could be a psychologist. It could be, um, I don't know. It could be a lot of things other than marketers to make a department that's going to have a different focus, um, you know, effective. 
it's it's tough to, again it's tough to say though yeah i think that's all that's all that all i mean that captures kind of the challenge with this the the reason why i think it's happening you know one person i talked to said well it really is an easier euphemism and adam i know you you talked about that earlier and you've talked about that in the past where it's easier in some ways to not get people stuck on marketing, the word marketing. Right. Um, so that was one reason given. The other is, and I think this is actually more valid and more reflective of both situations. It's reflective of what's happening in the industry. So you have marketing departments <clears throat> that are being challenged to support population health management strategies, mm-hmm. right. um, network strategies, uh whatever it may be. So you combine the idea that marketing should be about engagement, though it doesn't mean you wouldn't, there are times where awareness and impressions are what you're after. Engagement probably should be the number one goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you're going to have to engage or target audiences that you're not selling to because you literally want to keep them out of the store, if you will. Um, the trick here, I, I think, is... The, the challenges I have with it are one, that's still marketing to me. Uh, so we're talking about like content marketing using health or wellness. So the Cleveland Health Hub, perfect example, right? So the the point of that is to provide, is to build their brand, uh, to engage consumers. Obviously, it's working. They're they're actually driving awareness. Um, bigger than anything else they're doing that's still marketing though you're still building your brand you're still hoping to attract people who will someday consider you for use it's just long view marketing uh so that's one concern i have the other concern i have is i think marketers already struggle with credibility within their organization Mm -hmm. uh, and are seen as not strategic and you know, something that, you know, we have, but we're not really utilizing well and how much do they really, much value do they bring and all that. Um, And I think the path to overcoming that is showing how what you do is completely and utterly tied to business. And marketing is a necessary business function and every, every business that has to bring in money, nonprofit or not, you have to bring in the right patients or customers with the right revenue uh, or you won't survive. So I fear that the euphemism, whether it's because it's used as a euphemism or because it's trying to reflect changes in what we're doing will soften how folks at leadership or in other parts of the organization view marketing. And that's the last thing we need. So I guess I, I, I'd i like to see how it plays out. Uh, I think, Adam, your point about, I do think these organizations, from what I'm told, are really actually trying to build their marketing departments in different ways. Uh, and, you know, it's so interesting to me because probably two or three years ago, there was a blog post by a woman that talked about how I, she didn't really say it this way, but she it, it was like, I don't know, she was a marketing consultant and she said something like, you know, we're not going to need marketing in the future. It's all about it's all about building relationships and, um, you know, essentially we weren't going to have to market anymore. And I vehemently disagreed. I still disagree. It's in the book, Joe Public 2. Marketing's not going away. Mm-hmm. But I do think we've moved closer to what she was talking about. 
and I think we even, if I remember right, went back like the next podcast, and because I think I skewered the the post, <laughs> and I and I not only felt no. bad, but also was like, okay, well she's she's not completely wrong here. Let's be clear about that. Uh, but but I still hold on to the fact that what marketing is defined as, which is bringing in the right revenue to an organization, is still needed. It's always going to be needed. Um, and it may shift in how you do that or where that revenue has to come in or what form it takes. Uh, so, you know, some systems are doing risk reward relationships with payers, for example, where they want to get a cut of the premiums that the insurance company charges and then they get to keep whatever money's left over from the care they deliver. Uh, and so in that case, you're literally trying to keep people out of the hospital for unnecessary care because that's going to sap that pool of money you got. But you're still going to have to attract people to the network mm -hmm. to get that money in the first place. So that's still marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, I don't know, it's just an interesting trend. We'll see if we see more of it out there. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else about that? No. No? <laughs> okay. Should we talk just briefly about our miraculous city? How awesome we are as we are we're talking about sub-zero weather. <laughs> yeah. We rock. We're miraculous, one we're might say. We're miraculous. The miracle. What's funny is, I don't know if this guy did this intentionally. I, I feel like he didn't, and he just made a mistake. Um, so what we're talking about is an article that was in Atlantic, came out Monday, called The Miracle of Minneapolis. The subhead says, no other place mixes affordability, opportunity, and wealth so well. What's its secret? One of my favorite quotes in here was that he kind of quoted a, an old saw that says, while it's really hard to get people to move to Minneapolis, it's impossible to get them to leave. Right. Because once they get here, it's, it's easy to find jobs. It's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a great place to be other than the weather. Right. Um, <laughs> so first of all, what I think what's interesting is in the 70s, there was the governor and the the, the the government at some level, the state government and maybe local governments, did something with taxes that was that was called the Minnesota Miracle. And it was on the cover of Time. And a lot of people in Minnesota know this article because this cover um, cover story had a picture of the governor. I think his name was Elm or something. He was standing up in like in a boat. He was holding a fish. And it was called the Minnesota Miracle, and it was about how Minnesota had had created this unbelievable place to be. Taxes were part of it. I can't remember what the miracle was. So now this guy's either intentionally riffing on that or or unknowingly using the same word. But this is about Minneapolis specific, not Minnesota. So I should state that. Just Minneapolis so what, is cool. <laughs> what did you guys think of the article? <coughs> Uh, well, I learned some stuff. I didn't know anything about that uh, kind yeah, of the, totally. the distribution of wealth and the, the history of that. Um, Do you want to say what you're talking about real quick? Because people may not, they may think you're like super liberal. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you, it's, I think you, you probably have better, it sounds like you have a better understanding of kind of the history of that. So maybe yeah. you should describe what that, what that was all about. Essentially, they, they made some kind of deal, and I think this was in the 70s, um, and I don't know if it's the same thing I was referencing a second ago, where all of the, the, the cities and suburbs connected to Minneapolis agreed that they would take a portion of their tax earnings from growth. So as they grow, as they grew, 
they would earn, take in more taxes, and a portion of that would be put into a big pool mm-hmm. and redistributed. So it's almost like what happens in in sports leagues, where you've got like revenue sharing in the NBA or, or baseball, for example, where the New York Yankees bring in like a billion dollars a year, but they have to give part of that back into a pool, which is then redistributed to the rest of the teams, like Minneapolis is an example, or St. Louis or Kansas City, that aren't as big and can't make as much revenue. What that does is it ensures or helps ensure that everybody has a fair shot. Now, Mm -hmm. people usually point at the Yankees and say, well, it's not fair. They have a bigger payroll. They still get advantage of that. But if they didn't have this revenue sharing, it would be ridiculous. They would have like all of the all-stars would play there. Nobody else could afford the people. Uh, and I think that's the case in, in all of the major sport leagues, at least the NFL, you know, baseball and, and the other one, NBA. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't know that. so it's the same kind of principle. It's the same kind of principle so that, so that you don't have in, in most other cities, the rich suburbs keep all their money, which is why they always have the best, you know, housing and the best, um, schools and the best amenities and you still get that in the twin cities don't get us wrong you still have you know eden prairie or lakeville or um you know the outlying suburbs where people who are richer tend to move Um, they still tend to have better programs better sports facilities whatever but it would be far worse like it is in other cities and it'd be far worse in the inner ring suburbs or the city itself Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things they point out that led to this um, basically flat, flatter uh, metropolitan area. Flatter meaning more. there's more equality in terms of the people where they live. Uh, it's easier to move around and get a job. There's a lot of middle managers that can shift from Target to Best Buy to whatever. Uh, and so that's a big part of what it's talking about. And the result is a, a place with you know a lot of growth, a lot of self-built Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody's moving their Fortune 500 company headquarters to Minneapolis. They build it here, um, and then they stay. And a lot of times they leave, like Delta left, and some leave. But a lot of cities, that's the case. Is, is folks will, you know, they'll move. But you've got Target, 3M, United Health, General Mills. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, right? So it's it's pretty cool article, uh, I would say. Yeah. Go Minneapolis again. <laughs> Do we touch on the negative side at all? Can I touch we on probably, it? We probably should, since it's out there and, and you, you, we were talking about it before the show. And I, I think it's a, it's a good point. Um, so let's we should. Okay. So there was a rebuttal that came from somebody at the Washington Post the next day. They said, if Minneapolis is so great, why is it so bad for African-Americans? So it talks about the article and all the great things it says about Minneapolis. Um, and then it says... Uh, the questions arise because Minneapolis has another quirk, one that's a bit more difficult to talk about. It's really white, which is, we know that, right? Mm-hmm. 2010 census, about 79% of people in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Bloomington area said they were non-Hispanic white. Um, only 8.4% said they were non-Hispanic black. So essentially 8% of our population is African-American. Um, and the other, <laughs> consider the other large metropolises that Thompson praises for being both upwardly mobile and affordable. Salt Lake City, which I don't think you even need to think about statistics, would also be considered extraordinarily white, 75% right. <laughs> white. And Pittsburgh, 87% white. 
the New York metro area, in contrast, is less than half white. And so the point that's made here is maybe one of the things that helped Minneapolis succeed was it did not have to grapple with a significant racial disparity, which is often correlated with um, income disparity that other uh, metropolises had to deal with. So, and I think that's a, it's definitely a fair question to raise. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point. Uh, I think that the, this article, I mean, this article talked about inequality. And, and by that, I mean the, the one on Minneapolis, the first one from the Atlantic. It didn't get into race, at least not very deep if it did at all. It just really talked about income disparity, basically, without getting into right. some of the uh, ethnic ethnicity components of that. Um, so I think, I, I think that the Washington Post brings up a great point. Um, it, it, we certainly do need to look at it through that lens, but I think nonetheless, it's still a very interesting case study in what, what's played out in this scenario, given, given all the factors at, at play. Um, and can anything be learned from that either, you know, on our side when it comes to, um, uh, you know, inequality and, and how ethnicity plays into that and what can be learned from 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 cities who are, who are grappling with those issues um, from from what we've done. Um, I hope something, maybe nothing. Um, but but I think it's I think it's, it's still an interesting case study nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think th- th- this is the paragraph that I think makes the point that it may not be as simple as is what the first article talks about. It says. So a lot of this happened in the 70s. The, 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 the foundation for the success today came from these decisions that were made in the 70s. And it says in the 1970s, when the equitable growth policies were being passed, the Minneapolis area was 94% white and 2% black. Think about that. Few people lived in segregated areas because few people were minorities to begin with. It's easy to pass redistributive tax agreements when your neighbors are more or less homogeneous. And then he makes a comparison that that makes us a lot like the Scandinavian countries where, uh, you know, the welfare nations where they have a lot of success there too, right? Great, great standard of living, uh, great education, great healthcare, all of that. Um, the city's successes have the whiff of a chicken or egg riddle. Minneapolis has had some, has had some success combating urban rot and maintaining a large, healthy middle class. But it's also never had to seriously struggle with these issues, so that's why I think it's a fair question. Um, and and you know all of this is nuanced, but it's still very interesting yeah. to think about. Like you said, Adam, like well, what you have to factor that in, but also those policies are very unique. And in the first article talks about right. it's surprising how few other cities have tried this. Most recently, Seoul, South Korea, has tried it with great success. Um, so. Anyway, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're good reads. Check good it out, and yeah, not not terribly long. I mean, the Atlantic article was pretty reasonable. How long was the New York the uh, Washington Post article? It's it's even shorter. Pretty short. It's even shorter. Yeah. Yep. If it's really long, no one's gonna no one's gonna bother. <laughs> well, it, for me it can make a difference sometimes. I, I'll flip open an article That's and I'll true. I'll look at the length and I'm like, do I have time to read all of this right now? <laughs> Um, do you really? If, if wow. not, if not, oh, no, but I, but my outcome, I mean, what I'll do will be different. If if it's something that's like the length of this um, Atlantic article, I would say, yeah, I can read that now. So that's only going to be a few minutes. Um, if it's something that's like two to three times as long or longer, I'll usually add it to Instapaper. 
um, and then read it on my iPad. Uh, it's like tonight if I have, or that night, if I have time or, or I'll at least I'll have it there knowing that it's something that I, that's longer that I can't read in just a couple minutes and that I'll come back to. Um, I, I won't skip it. I won't skip over it altogether. No, and I didn't mean, wow, like, wow, that's terrible, or wow, that's weird. I just meant, like, I don't even think that way. Like, I'll just start an article, and if it intrigues me, I'll read it. Yeah, I oh. usually, one of the first things I usually do is look at the look how long it is. I kind of do, too. I hate to admit it. Just just so I don't get halfway through it, and I'm like, I don't have time to finish this. Because mm-hmm. I would like to finish it, usually. All right, then. Rivet, riveting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Now that you now that everyone's up on our reading habits, that's right. Oh, and I suppose if you don't know what Instapaper is, which you probably do if you listen to podcasts, um, it's just, it's a it's a nice service. I don't know. I feel like if somebody is sophisticated on the technical side enough that they're into podcasts, they probably have an idea of what some of these services like Instapaper are. Um, but it means that they a, can use iTunes. That makes them sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, listeners. Um, <laughs> I should. I'm apologizing. <laughs> um. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, Instapaper. No, it's just a cool service that you can save content to, and it makes the reading experience uh, much better. Some browsers have that built in now. Like I think Safari has got it built in, where you can basically hit a button in the brow in the uh, top of the browser, and it'll remove all the formatting from the page, all the design, and just have the text there for you to read. Uh, yeah. That's kind of what Instapaper does, but it saves it for you as well, so you can read it whenever you want to. So if you're on the bus, on a commute, or uh, you mean- traveling and flying, you can read it anytime and you mean specifically when you're offline i mean that's where it has the most benefits you right. don't have to because otherwise right. you can just go to the article itself but mm-hmm. this allows uh, you to read yeah, it offline. yep and well the other thing i like about it too is that it wrangles everything into one area um mm-hmm. rather that so you don't have to go back to the website not that that's a lot of work um but you just you're dumping it into this one like repository where that's that's now that's where it is you just go there and find it there rather than having to go back and dig it out of the whatever website so it's kind of a bookmarking service in addition to that because it, yeah. it saves all that stuff for you but jackie is that what you do too i mean i tried that a long time ago with rss feeds and i gave up because yeah it just becomes so daunting if i look at my yeah. feed or my you know bookmarks or feed and there's like 15 things there i'm like i'm never gonna get to those and it just piles up oh yeah mm-hmm. so i've learned like if i'm gonna read something you better read it when i'm interested because if i bookmark it odds are i won't get to it later yeah yeah no i'm, 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 and I'm chris yeah i agree i agree with both you guys I'm, I'm kind of the same way too my my instapaper is definitely full of stuff that i have have not gotten back to and my RSS reader, which I have probably a couple hundred subscriptions in there, it's I don't even try to I don't even try to keep up with that. I just go right. to it. I clear it out pretty much every day, like in terms of the unread count. And I go to the set. I go to the resources that I like. There's a couple that I watch, and when there's something new there, I pretty much read it every time. But otherwise, I clear it out and I go to the like folders that have the content that I like, and I just look for interesting stuff or the latest stuff. Um, so I, I don't try to keep on top of it like Twitter. I don't go to Twitter and like scroll back through hundreds of posts to see what I missed. I go and I look at the, what's, you know, fairly recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we learned a lot today. I'd say so. <laughs> we did. We learned about digital. We learned about engagement. We learned about Minneapolis. We learned about Instapaper. <laughs> and, and cervical measurements. And cervical oh. measurements. Yes. Nice. <laughs> At your cervix. We, we had already left it. Let's, let's it bring been... it back around. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, then. Well, Jackie, would... hopefully we won't hear from you for another four months. No offense, but I know you want to pop that None baby. None taken. Pop it. Let's, let's get this going here. Yeah. Are you doing all the things you're supposed to do, like taking long walks and <laughs> eating spicy food and <laughs> mm-hmm. pineapple? You name it. 
I think it's all BS at this point. So pineapple supposed to help induce labor? Supposedly, you'd be huh. amazed. I mean, there's just like a million yeah. things out there that they claim naturally induce labor, none of which have worked for me. So I'm cynical <laughs> at this point. Are you yeah, going? They, are you like surfing the internet? That's the bad infamous idea. Day. Jeans. Oh, totally. I've never Googled as much in my life as I have these last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Google is my friend, and they're all questions that I'm entering. <laughs> so, oh, well, good luck. Well, thanks. See all you listeners later. Yeah, we'll talk to you next time for the Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bastards. This is Chris Bevelo. Jackie Olson. And Adam Meyer. Bye.